It's Puppeturgy with a whole entire episode about the Judy Collins episode of The Puppet Show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are Adam Grossworth, Christy Bauer, and Michal Richardson. Adam, where are we? Who are we? I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. I'm sorry to say we have an addition to last week's episode. Didn't think we could hate Rich a little more. Well, we didn't bother looking up details on his current-ish off-Broadway show last week, but I did stumble across a description while I was looking at theater listings for work, and, well, if I have to know, you have to know. Trial on the Potomac, I'm sorry, everything I'm I'm quoting now. Trial on the Potomac is a new play inspired by the real-life discoveries of Jeff Shepard, a lawyer who worked in the Nixon White House during the Watergate scandal. This is alternative history. In this play, Nixon does not resign, but instead stands for an impeachment trial. The trial unmasks an astonishing conspiracy by the Washington political establishment to drive Nixon from office. Every piece of evidence produced at the trial has been corroborated to be true. I don't think I understand. (laughs) End quote. Uh, It's already closed. It had actually already closed when we recorded our episode. It's definitely already closed now. It was a limited run. Sorry? Did you think to look up reviews to see if anyone wrote about this? I did not. It closed on September 4th, so it actually closed like before most of New York indoor theater was reopened. So I don't know who went to see this. But I have an if idea. You, if you did, <laughs> let us know. I mean, I'd say Rich Little's mom, but Rich Little is very He's old. 82, yeah. so maybe <laughs> anything's possible. So it looks like it got very little coverage, but the New York Post did write about what? it. What? <laughs> what was the headline? Uh, the headline is Off-Broadway Play Asks Its Audience to Vote on Nixon's Complicity oh God. Watergate. Of 26 showings so far, just one, a Sunday matinee, collected the required 67 votes to convict. All others found Nixon not guilty. That does not sound culturally uplifting. Moving right along, we are here tonight to talk about Season 2. Episode 5, Judy Collins. Uh, This was produced the week of June 21st, 1977, and it aired in New York City on January 30th, 1978. It was the 15th episode aired in New York, so right in the middle of the season. Uh, We have a new lineup for the new year on CBS in New York. The Muppet Show is followed by Good Times, Baby I'm Back, which was a mid-season replacement, and... That was it. It only lasted half a season. What was Mash, it back from? I I don't know. <laughs> I didn't look that deeply. I the only actor in the cast I had personally heard of was Kim Fields, who went on to play Tootie in The Facts of Life. Anyway, Good Times Baby I'm back, Mash, One Day at a Time, and Lou Grant, which frankly, that is a great evening of television kicked off at the Muppet Show. Yeah, I'm in. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Judy Collins is an American singer-songwriter best known for introducing Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now and making Stephen Sondheim's Sending the Clowns a radio hit and Grammy-winning song of the year. Born in 1939 in Seattle, Judy's family moved to Denver when she was 10. The following year, she had a bout with polio and spent two months in hospital isolation. Aren't we glad that we all have access to vaccines? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Tell it to Rich Little's audience. Right? Wah, wah. An early piano prodigy, Judy made her professional debut at age 13, 
When her piano teacher expressed disdain for Judy's growing love of folk music, Judy discontinued her study of piano and took up guitar. Shortly after graduating high school, she hit the coffeehouse circuit. In 1958, she married Pete Taylor. His academic career took them to the University of Connecticut, and the campus turned out to be a receptive audience for Judy's music. This also put her within reach of New York's Greenwich Village folk scene, where she performed in clubs and made a connection with Elektra Records, which would become her recording home for 35 years. In 1961, Judy released her first album, A Maid of Constant Sorrow, at age 22. In 1962, she made her Carnegie Hall debut. Not long after, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis and spent six months recuperating in a sanatorium. Her first few albums were fairly straightforward folk albums, but by the mid-60s, she began to branch out and record rock and roll, show tunes, and more, adding orchestral color to her guitar playing. Her first marriage ended in divorce in 1965. By 1967, she was also recording songs she wrote herself, although perhaps ironically, that's also when she had her first mega hit with Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now, which reached number eight on the Billboard Hot 100 and won her Grammy Award for Best Folk Performance. Uh, Around that time, she became romantically involved with Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills & Nash, who wrote the song Sweet Judy Blue Eyes about her. They remain friends to this day, and in fact, a few years ago, they teamed up to record an album of Leonard Cohen covers together. Like many folk singers in the 60s, she was involved in progressive politics. She even testified at the trial of the Chicago 7, where she got in trouble for singing Where Have All the Flowers Gone as part of her testimony. Oh, no. Was that in the movie? I did not know. <laughs> no, the movie. It, it, it wasn't. I was just sitting here thinking, man, that would have made that movie so much better. Right? Who played her in the movie? Um, was, she in the, was she in the movie? She wasn't in the movie. Oh, okay. Of course not. She's a woman, and Aaron Sorkin wrote it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Throughout the years, she's been involved in campaigns for abortion access, gun restriction, and landmine abolition. By the 70s, she had hit her stride as the genre-defying performer that we've come to know her as, and in 1975, she had her biggest hit with Send in the Clowns. That same year, she made her first appearance on Sesame Street, where she would appear 11 times over the next three years. Uh, In 1977, in addition to appearing on The Muppet Show and releasing an album, Judy was treated for damaged vocal cords. And then, after years of struggling with alcoholism, she sought medical help to give up drinking. Unfortunately, when she beat drinking, she developed an eating disorder that plagued her for many more years. In 1978, she got romantically involved with designer Louis Nelson. They eventually married in 1996 and remain together today. In the 90s, she lost her only son to suicide, and ever since, she's been a suicide prevention activist as well. She's written a number of books, including memoirs, a novel, and a chronicle of her struggles with the diet industry. Uh, she continues to record to this day, and in fact, she had her first Billboard number one in 2019. Huh. Uh, so that's Judy Collins. I'm wondering if anyone has Judy Collins' impressions or memories to share. Wait, what was her number one? It was number one on the Bluegrass charts, oh, okay. and it was Winter Stories with Jonas Field and Chatham County Line. All right, noted. I really like the Muppets-only parts of this episode, and on my first viewing... I actually hated Judy Collins almost as much as I hated Rich Little. (laughs) I'm not mad at her or confused about why she was here. She's just extremely not for me. And the one number that I like is the one that I'm pretty sure I'm really not supposed to like, and we'll get into it later. But because we're doing a podcast and I watched it again, I'm I'm actually really glad I watched it again because it surprisingly really grew on me the second time through. This is still not really for me, but I I kind of enjoyed it. And I I, I don't know. I kind of like her. Maybe it was Stockholm Syndrome. 
How what about you? <laughs> yes. Speaking as somebody who I I self-identify as a, a hippie and a folky and perhaps relevant to all the k- kind of uh, sesame-esque content in this episode, and also a children's media professional. So this episode really feels like it ought to have my name on it. Um, and I was really expecting to kind of vibe with Judy Collins, but alas, I did not. Um, there is plenty in this episode to enjoy. Um, and I, I can also see why Sending the Clowns became one of Judy Collins' signature numbers. But still, um, I think that Zorak speaks for all of us on the 1997 album Space Ghosts Musical Barbecue. Going to the circus, whether you like it or not. I told her she could take a hike. She kicked me in the rear. I said, all right, I'll go, but let me just make one thing clear. Don't send in the clowns. Don't send in the clowns. Sorry. Don't send in the clowns. They always bring me down. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Thank you for blessing us with that. (laughs) I, yep. That's what I got. David, how about you? I had a similar experience to you, Adam, where I did not care for it the first time through, largely because Judy just seems so uh, uncomfortable. Like she doesn't really know where to look ever, um, whether she's interacting with Muppets or just sort of in her own space. And also, I think when Michal noted that this has sort of a Sesame Street vibe to it, I think while I like Sesame Street, I don't want a Sesame Street vibe on my Muppet show. And so I think that also was a little off-putting. But watching the second time through where I was a little bit more prepared for both of those elements, I did enjoy it more. And also I think there's great humor to be found in some of the places where it's not clear if that's intentional. Or maybe it is. We'll we'll talk about it when we get there. (laughs) Christy? Yeah, I didn't hate this episode, but I was sort of sad that I didn't hate this episode because... I deeply enjoyed dunking on Rich Little last week. <laughs> and, and and this one, I mean, I, I'm not mad at Judy Collins. I'm, I'm a huge folk fan, but she, I don't even think of her as being folk so much as like pop folk. Like she kind of lives in her own sort of like easy listening category, even though she was part of that world. But yeah, she just looks blankly haunted through most of this. And yeah, there's some fun to be had throughout, but yeah, it it just sort of, I I will barely remember this episode come next season. As far as the observation about the the sesame-like quality of some parts of this episode, I should credit that to having read Anthony Strand's review of this for Tough Pigs. His suggestion was given that it feels like they're trying to mash up Sesame Street with the Muppet show for so much of this episode, what he suggests you do is rather than watch send in the clowns as the finale, you should turn off the episode and watch her Sesame street segment, the fisherman song, which is a fun Judy Collins Sesame appearance. Hard disagree. Okay. Well, there you know you're listening. Why would you turn off the only good part of the episode? (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. We're going to talk about it. Stand by for mid course correction. (laughs) 
<laughs> 15 seconds to curtain, Miss Collins. I'm ready. I'm ready for anything. Are you, though? <laughs> She's not ready for Crazy Harry to blow things up, which is really what you should be prepared for. They're really trying to make Crazy Harry happen this season. I'm fine with that. That's that's a lot of what characterizes the Muppet Show. I mean, sure. Yeah. Um, also uh, notable at the top of the show, Kermit actually introduces the guest star and not just saying, oh, and we'll see them later in the show, but he actually introduces the opening number and the guest star in a way that logically follows because the guest star is in the opening number. It's very exciting. It is. We have with us one of the most beautiful and talented singers in the entire world. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's about uh, time you said something nice about me. Uh, Piggy, uh-huh. I-, I was referring to Miss Judy Collins. Oh, <laughs> him. Did she say him? I can't tell if it's like, hmm, like a harumph. I think that's the intention. Or if it's, yeah, but it really sounds like a him. I mean, I didn't catch that on any of my viewings of the episode, but... Now the way she delivers it, I can only hear her from Arrested Development. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Uh, as far as Kermit's yay evolution, we have nothing this week. We do have a cute Statler and Waldorf opening. Do we have to watch this? Yeah. (laughs) I'm afraid you do. And Gonzo's trumpet. The transcript said it sounds like a flute. I didn't get flute, but that's... No, I just got like it was a weak trumpet blast. It wasn't much of a joke like at all. This, like he was surprised that it worked. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hey, nothing funny happened. <laughs> What's gone wrong? <laughs> no news tonight. There, exactly. Yeah, I'm up at Joe backstage. So this week backstage, it's the debut of Scooter's heartless tightwad Uncle J.P. Gross. And he wants to tear the theater down and turn it into a junkyard. Yeah, I'm tearing it down, putting in a junkyard. But, 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 but why? Because there's more money in real junk than this junk you got here. So you get this wells dry. Uh, don't forget the option on the frog. Get a lean on his legs. I think my stock just dropped. The lean on his legs sounds so uncomfortable. We learned a couple of things about Scooter this episode. First of all, we learned that all those times that he played the whole My Uncle Owns a Theater card, it really was a threat. His uncle is a real person, and he could take away all these people's jobs at any moment. And we also learned that Scooter is an ambitious, opportunistic little jerk face who does not give a hoot about the theater or about his friends. And the moment his uncle says that he plans to put Scooter in charge of the junkyard, Scooter ducks below frame and appears with a sledgehammer and starts knocking stuff down. We also learned something about Miss Piggy's tastes in this episode. I wonder, would you like to hear me sing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> Call me irresponsible. Call me unreliable. Call me... Call you? What for? No money in hog calling. <laughs> well, call this cigar breath. Hi! <laughs> For a second there, I thought somebody was going to get hurt around here. (laughs) That was Kermit walking into the way of her karate chop and getting chopped himself. Yeah, so a quick note about the snatch of song that Piggy just sang. It's from 1962. It's a Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn song that won the 1963 Best Song Oscar. And it made me think I should start keeping a checklist of all of the Best Song Oscar winners that uh, the Muppets 
have covered. Relevant to a later bit of this episode of our podcast, it was introduced in a movie called Papa's Delicate Condition, which starred Jackie Gleason and Glennis Johns, which if you don't know who that is, we will talk about her uh, in a Full circle. Spoilers. Yeah. I can't wait till we get to hear the Muppets coverage hard out here for a pimp. Uh, you know, I thought of that and uh, let's not talk about it for too long because there's just a short line to be drawn to Pepe singing. There, it's hard saying, out here they for must have, right? That's, that's a <laughs> they, book they definitely, like, the I don't know if they've recorded this song, but it's a book. Right? Yeah, it's the title of Pepe's self-help book or whatever it was. <sighs> of course it is. Fucking Pepe. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, they already got there. Muppets did it. Did we have things to say about Piggy and or Scooter? Uh, just that Scooter and JP do not look like they're related in any way. Like, I know it's foolish to think about Muppet genetics too much, but... Well, except that if you watch Sesame Street, where we're often meeting Muppets' parents and children, they make a strong case for Muppet genetics. So it's even weirder here where where there's... They just don't Great. I was going to like try to not go to a crazy place, but you <laughs> you went there in a very sane way. Thank you. So, yeah. Or Makes Scooter no might be all. adopted. Sure. Just Or it could be an uncle by marriage. Also Any true. of those are possible. Yes. So, I had a disturbing realization about JP during the final scene on a second watch of this. I, because I, I kept thinking, I was just like, "There's he's reminding me of somebody. Who is he reminding me of? And I realized... It's the combination of the mustache and the accent, but he's Ted Lasso. <laughs> oh, no. No. I know. I know. It's terrible. But the the, the, the accent, it's it's Ted Lasso's accent, and I no. can't not hear it. No. I don't want to ruin something pure. But... I'm five episodes into <laughs> Ted Lasso, and this is going to be a problem. <laughs> now, a few weeks ago, I said that he was Scott Rudin. How, does, how do those two things correlate? I mean, I'm not saying that he is Ted Lasso. He's not Ted Lasso at all, but it's just the voice is is the Ted Lasso voice. Ted Lasso's favorite act would totally have been the Danceros, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> he would love that. Son How does again. Ted Lasso feel about lady wrestlers? I think if uh, they do what makes them happy, he's in favor. <laughs> we almost make it to the end of the episode, assuming that the whole theater is doomed, and then... Uh, JP Gross comes out onto the stage during the closing and announces that he's decided to not tear the theater down after all, since it's just going to cave in on its own. And he stomps on the floor, creates a hole, falls through, and all of the Muppets proceed to just like walk onto the stage for no reason at all and fall into a hole in the floor while Judy Collins tries to help him out of the hole, which is really funny. Muppets falling down is never not funny. Oh, cancel that plan. I'm not going to tear this place down. You're not? No, it'd be a waste of money. This stuff's going to fall in on its own. Look at this floor. Hey, well, we'll see you all next time on the Muppets. Always funny, even in audio. Yeah, it's very rewarding. Uh, apparently, Jim Henson once said that J.P. Gross was a good concept so long as we didn't see him, but when we introduced him in person, he was just too harsh. You don't want to have him around. I think that's true. Yeah, he's around for a handful of episodes of The Muppet Show, but this this is, this is episode is his main deal, and that makes sense. <laughs> We unsurprisingly have a lot of music this week. Most of it of the folk or folk adjacent variety. Our first song is a traditional English folk song. 
Hi. Said the little brown mother winged bat, I'll tell you the reason that, the reason that I fly in the night. It's because I've lost my heart's delight. Howdy dowdy diddle all day. Howdy dowdy diddle all day. Howdy dowdy diddle all day. I have to go and sing now with Woodpecker. Find out what how thou needed no dumb means. I will. So uh, this is Leatherwing Bat. Uh, it's a t- traditional folk song. It's been recorded by a lot of folk superstars. There's a Pete Seeger version. And m- my suspicion is that this version was directly inspired by a Peter, Paul, and Mary version that appeared on a children's album from 1969 called Peter, Paul, and Mommy. The arrangement is very similar. Maybe we can try to put some of these in the show notes, but there are some other very different arrangements and even um, somewhat different melodies or at least a different enough execution of the song that it sounds like a whole other song yeah the pete seeger version is like super quick uh so yeah the the sort of more chill vibe here is sort of aligned with that peter paul and mary when i was making the list of clips you know we shared notes before we record and i couldn't be bothered to look up the title and you certainly can't figure it out by listening to the song and i i just wrote this folk bullshit Um, which (laughs) tells you how I feel about this song. But then like when I watched it again, I was like, okay, the Muppets are super cute. And I actually her delivery of, I will. (laughs) It's it's weirdly sincere. And, but also like she's in on the joke. I don't know. I found it very strangely charming the second time. Like once I got over what the fuck is this song on the first viewing on the second viewing, I, I actually found it very adorable and, and like weird in the right way. Yeah, this was a sweet song. She's wandering around the the forest of despair. It's nice to see that again. Yeah, I was waiting for the butterflies to attack her. But <laughs> yeah. When when this scene started, I was watching with Keith, and he goes, "What the fuck is this set?" <laughs> <laughs> Did you explain? Uh, no, I was just like just leaning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was happy to see the singing owl again. I think that bit is so stupid and so funny. <laughs> yes. And the little bat going hi. <laughs> Yeah, and the bat so, is so cute. And at the, they do the little chorus at the end, and the bat just like leans himself into her and throws his head back and sings the chorus. It's really cute. None of the animals feel like they're quite from the same world. Like, even other, within yeah. Muppet World, like they're all three of them are don't really match, which I found a little bit. The bat looks like a very well loved children's toy. Mm-hmm. Like like it has that quality to his fur. Like it's been around yeah. the block. And and the owl to me looks like the dark god of the Furbies. <laughs> yeah, the owl looks like it belongs on this set and then the the other two not so much. At the end of this scene, we get a little Statler and Waldorf part where Statler mentions his wife. And I just wanted to note that. You know, when I see that Judy Collins, I'm glad I left my wife. You left your wife? Yeah, I left her at home. (laughs) Okay. Sure. Statler, correct me if I'm wrong, not very many episodes ago with going backstage to romance Valerie Harper. And and also has romance Waldorf. And it's Waldorf. Yeah, it's Waldorf who who will later get a wife canonically. Right. Although we'll, I mean, we'll discuss I, I, that when we yes, see I know, it. But, um, Maybe Statler yeah, and his wife have an arrangement. That's, yeah, perhaps. In fact, this is not the last time that the prospect of a thruple will come up in this very episode. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. I like that I'm not even sure what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I have okay. no idea. We better keep, we better keep going <laughs> to find let's out. Let's go. Yeah. 
dying to find out what that is. Well, it's definitely not in the next segment. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, <laughs> no, 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 there's a lot, like a there's a lot entering that old lady. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just play the clip. <laughs> I know an old lady who swallowed a dog. What a hunk! She swallowed a dog! <laughs> well, she swallowed the dog to catch the cat. She swallowed the cat to catch the bird. Swallowed the bird to catch the spider that wriggled and tickled and jiggled inside she swallowed the spider to catch the fly, but I don't know why she swallowed the fly. I guess I'll die. Come here, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah, so th- this I knew from one of those Muppet Songs compilation VHS tapes very well. Um yeah, so uh, so as Judy Collins is singing the song, we see in in silhouette an old lady who uh, unhinges her jaw and proceeds to eat all of these things. Not okay. It's really I not okay. It. I hate it so much. Oh, I thought it was a neat puppet. I it's the it's the jaw it's the jaw elongating I, that I found very creepy. Not the tiny horse. No, the tiny horse is fine. <laughs> So interestingly, I had always assumed that this was a traditional public domain song. Shout out to the public domain. <laughs> but it's not. I mean, it, it seems like it's something that maybe started as like a camp song or or, or something. Uh, because apparently the, the sort of earliest references to it were in a, a journal called Hoosier Folklore. <laughs> uh, in 1947. Is there a question and, mark at the end of that? Or does it say yeah. Hoosier? <laughs> <laughs> who's your uh, oh like, <laughs> indianan in, indianan uh just checking uh, yeah i mean it, it's always good to track mm-hmm. uh and it, it had some variations on this but it ended up getting copywritten uh copyrighted i think copyrighted whatever copyrighted in 1952 by uh Alan Mills and Rose Bond. Rose Bond uh, claimed credit for the lyrics and uh, Alan Mills the music. And it was put out on an album in 1953 by Burl Ives. And then from there, it sort of entered the public consciousness through an unhinged jaw. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Unhinged. Yeah. I remember this song from childhood. Not, I don't think as a Muppet song. I think it was like a song that we sang at, school or camp or around the house i don't know but i do not remember this ending i know an old lady who swallowed a horse (laughs) she's dead of course (laughs) yeah that's how we always sang it and whatever yeah i mean maybe we did and i just forgot i just i don't remember how it ended maybe we just got bored before we got there (laughs) it does go on and on and on I think as someone who taught Hebrew school for many years, this song stayed more forward in my consciousness because uh, when you get to the Passover lessons, it always comes up as a modern day equivalent of the song Chad Gadya from the, the Seder. So, yeah. Uh, which also ends with the angel so, of yeah, death. yeah, at the end, God kills to- the lady. Well, I expect the angel of death there, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And again, Judy Collins, like, delighted delivery of that line. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm into it. But unexpected for me. <laughs> Cause of death, horse. <laughs> <laughs> the one other thing that I'll note about this is that uh, Wikipedia refers to it as a cumulative song. And it cites 12 Days of Christmas as a, a similar a song. And I, 
hey, it's another uh, Muppet reference because the Muppets recorded the definitive version of 12 Days of Christmas. Yes, we do. Yes. This is where we need a, an evergreen clip of Miss Piggy singing Five Golden Rings. Ba-dum, bum, bum. There we go. There. Who needs a clip? We have Christy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, th- that can be this week's. Ra-da-da-da-da. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so, strangely, uh, we get a Wayne and Wanda bit without Wayne and Wanda. I'm furious. <laughs> I talk to the trees, but they don't listen to me. I'm not listening anymore of this. <laughs> yeah, let's leave. Oh, <laughs> I love this. This is my favorite part. <laughs> ah, so it, it's uh, Link Hogthrob out of uh, space in an incredible outfit. Uh, everything i mean yeah it's the, it's the best thing of the episode <laughs> yeah he has his his shirt open and he has thick blonde chest yeah, hair does. which for some reason is so upsetting to me on a pig <laughs> <laughs> except for yeah but they don't have chest hair well is it they the also blonde? don't walk on two legs and talk and sing songs yeah. When we were discussing this before we started recording uh, on Slack, I had asked if Link always had live hands because in Pigs in Space, he definitely has live hands. And I realized that part of the reason why that jumped out at me is because in this bit, he does not have oh. live hands. And so I guess there's two versions of the Link puppet. Uh, and that's weird. Or they can like detach his hands or something. But yeah, in Pigs in Space, he has to operate levers and, and buttons incorrectly. So Right. <laughs> but I guess Piggy would too, and she doesn't. Have, whatever it doesn't matter i i mean i love this i just don't understand why they got rid of Wayne and wanda if they're gonna keep doing this joke because they couldn't dress them up in outfits like this sure they could Wayne could wear this Wayne could pull this off how dare you hi <laughs> do you think he has the chest hair for it i do <laughs> <laughs> this bit has a, a real jim neighbors energy to it yeah it's true it, it reminded well, me jim neighbors also had that Necrochief. number where should have been a, a Wayne and Wanda number, but instead it was a Jim Neighbors number. True. Gone with the wind. Yeah. yeah. But that's what he was wearing the neckerchief in that number too, right? So, uh, so this song is a Lerner and Lowe song from a musical called Paint Your Wagon from 1951, which uh, was about miners, uh, as in people who dig, not children, uh, during the California gold rush. And they made it into a movie in 1969. And, kept most of the songs or some of the songs, but throughout the whole script over a whole new story. And in the movie, which starred Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin, they are, I guess, also minors, but the plot revolves around there not being enough women to go around the number of minors they have. So they enter into a wife-sharing arrangement with Gene Seberg. <laughs> wow. It is bizarre and unwarranted. Yeah. <laughs> That's also the plot of next week's Pigs in Space. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't even know if you're kidding. <laughs> I don't either. I haven't watched it yet, but let's go with Yes, I Am. Did the 1969 movie version give us this bossa nova energy? No, it it's it's much more like uh, cowboy music in the way that it is. In the, the score is great. Painter Wagon, both the, the Broadway version and the movie version have great albums. Like, it's good music, fun songs. Uh, the movie's unwatchable. Do they paint a wagon? You know, it has been so long since I've seen. There's a song where they talk about painting your wagon, but I don't know if you actually see them paint a wagon. Well, false advertising. I don't know if what I'm familiar with is the the Simpsons version the of Simpsons, paint your wagon. It's the only, yeah, it's all I know. Yep. <laughs> so a lot of show tunes on this episode, as it turns out. Oh, a dear. A f- 
Son. Me and name I call myself. Far a long, long way to run. So a needle pulling thread. Far a note to follow so. Tea, a drink with gin and bread. Then we'll bring us back to So do you think they assign the lines based on the fact that it's really funny when Ralph sings ah syllables? It's very possible. Wouldn't rule it out. Yeah. So I don't think I need to say too much about this. It's Roger and Hammer Science from The Sound of Music. And we'll encounter this again in season three. But it's Ralph and Judy Collins doing a a two piano duet, which is a, a fun concept. It just seems like a blah song for them to of all the things they could have played at two pianos they it makes me sad and it makes me sad that like i i mean they chose one of her signature songs for sending the clowns which we'll get to but i mean this didn't sound like the best compliment to her voice she was in a weird in-between place and it made her breathy and i just i i wanted a better showcase for her yeah this starts with her with like them just chatting and her doing like practice exercises. And I did like that. It was sort of like what they were maybe trying to do with Rolf and Milton Burl, only not terrible. <laughs> if they had had her speak singing, that would have been even sadder. <laughs> right. Like there's a, there's a charm to like Rolf and the guests chatting leading into a number that I really like. It was a little awkward. It wasn't great. This, and I didn't like the number wasn't great, but like, but the, the vibe of what they're, what I think they're going for here, I really like, and I don't, I don't, I don't remember if if they keep it or not, but it's something I could see becoming really cute if they do. I didn't like that she had a full size piano and Rolf had his like little toy piano. It felt disrespectful to Rolf to me. They did have them lined up in. They should have had a full size piano too. Yin and Yang way though, like that's it's fun to see. I, I yeah, I wanted to happen more <laughs> dueling pianos, but actually dueling pianos. Should we send them in? <laughs> Don't bother. <laughs> well, there ought to be clowns. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. All right. So this begins with the weirdest <laughs> transition in the world. So this clip includes something we haven't talked about yet. It's coming out of the Swedish chef sketch and Stadler and Waldorf. Um, so just just that's to set up for the clip because I, because I, what? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Judy Collins. Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Last on the ground, you in midair. Where are the clouds? Well, where are they? Uh, They're behind you. Look out. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is Send in the Clowns, which was Judy Collins's big hit. And she's singing it uh, against a black background while 
chroma keyed over her shoulder are not Muppet clowns, but like dancer in costume clowns. Their, their faces are Muppety. They're yeah, they have some Muppet right. Like they're not just painted faces. Yeah, they're, they're masks. I didn't even notice yeah. that they were supposed to be Muppety masks until several viewings in. Like I just I yeah. thought they were clowns, and I was trying to pay attention to to her singing and to the dancing, and then at some point, I'm like, oh, they're. They're wearing masks that are supposed to be Muppety, but aren't very Muppety. I can't believe I'm saying this. They made me miss old dead star eyes. (laughs) (laughs) I would have preferred actual Muppet clowns, I think. So I know that at least Adam and maybe more than just one of you said that this was burned into your memory from childhood. I thought that was the case for me too, but then what I realized is that these same clowns will reappear in the Melissa Manchester episode. Yeah, uh, for "Don't Cry Out Loud," and that's the one that is burned into it's, my memory. I think that's it. true. Yeah, I it maybe it's both of them, but f- yes, yes, and <laughs> for sure that one is too. And that one, they're at least like in the same physical space as the right. singer. This is definitely one of those cases where I am I am one hundred percent sure that this is the first time I ever heard this song. Um, I mean, probably my mom played a little night music around the house, like the original cast album, but long before I ever knew this song in context from a musical, I would have known it as this Muppet show number. But also to this day, I cannot hear don't cry out loud without picturing those clowns (laughs) as opposed to this song where it now has other associations. (laughs) So, I mean, I picture either this or Krusty, the clown singing it in the Krusty comeback special. They both, Live rent-free in my brain for, <laughs> for whatever reasons. Catherine Zeta-Jones screaming it to the back of Radio City Music Hall, even though there's a camera directly in her face. You know, there's lots of <laughs> lots of versions have come along since. Mm-hmm. My, my personal favorite is Judy Dench. I, I think if, yes. if you haven't seen Judy Dench do this, then you haven't seen Shakespeare the way it's meant to be played. I, agreed. And I will actually defend Catherine Zeta-Jones' performance in the show, just not on the Tony Awards. <laughs> Barbara Streisand famously told... Sondheim, even though it had already been a Grammy-winning hit, that she thought the song outside of the context of the show didn't make a lot of sense because it's missing the dialogue scene in the middle and therefore the emotional transition. So, Steve, could you just write me a new bridge for it? And of course Mm -hmm. he did. So, uh, in her 1985 The Broadway album, she debuted a new version of Sending the Clowns. Yeah, we we should mention, um, skipped over, it's uh, from a musical. It's from A Little Night Music with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim from 1973. So at this point, a a very new show tune. And it was written initially during the preview period for the show for the actress Glennis Johns, who uh, you would probably know best as the mom from Mary Poppins. Or the grandmother from Superstar. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And uh, it it was specifically tailored for her limited vocal ability. So the fact that it ended up a song favored by big singers is sort of funny. Uh, The earliest versions of the song recorded outside of the show were recorded by uh, Judy Collins and noted Joe Raposo stand Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra's was actually the first. It was for an album called Old Blue Eyes is Back that came out in 1973. And the Judy Collins version charted twice. Uh, it was on the Hot 100 for 11 weeks in 1975. It, it reached number 36 at that point. And then it uh, was on the chart again in 1977. It reached number 19 at that point. And uh, as David previously mentioned, uh, she won a Grammy for it for Song of the Year. No, Stephen Sondheim won a Grammy for it for Song of the Year based on her performance, but she didn't actually get the Grammy. Sure, huh. sure. 
Sorry, that's just one, <laughs> it's one of those things like the difference between song of the year and record of the year. Song of the year is for the writer and record of the it's year for is the for performer. the performer. Right. Uh. right. But it's like super weird that Sondheim won this Grammy like many years after the song debuted and was first recorded. Yes. Huh. She gives a mer- very moving performance of it. I, d- I don't fault her for the way that she sings it here. I want to know, did they tell her what was going to be happening? So weird. Like she's clearly filmed just like giving a very straightforward, earnest, good performance of this song against a black background. It's just her staring. She's not in any way acknowledge or interact with the clowns. I was trying to picture what they must have told her as I was watching it. And I was picturing, you know, people saying like, oh yes, we're going to, we're going to put some clowns in there. It's going to be very artful and very moving and very appropriate. And she was like, great. Are the clowns supposed to be funny? Are they supposed they to? They certainly come across that way now. Yeah. I mean, but- it's, it's weird. Like, cause they seem a little ironic, but they're also very on the nose. I mean, I sort of got mom and Sean's vibes from them. Like, yeah, so, I guess sort of. Artful- we belly laughed. Like, <sighs> Yeah. The, especially like the the first appearance where uh, like she says where are the clowns and then a single clown comes running like he's running in chariots of fire from the void in the back towards the camera like how is that how could that possibly be intended as anything my favorite humor? is um making my entrance again with my usual flair and a clown mimes opening a door <laughs> and walking through it <laughs> it's spectacular but there is I, this is going to sound so stupid. There's a weird pathos to them. I think it's the masks more than the movement. I mean, cause it's a sad song and like the context of the song, which I mean, I hate to say it, Barbara Streisand is right. Like you take the song out of the show and it, it is, it, it is actually very hard to know what's going on. Right. The context of the song is like, she's really sad that, right. It's, it's her, she's really, she's reconnected with an old lover, but right. Their time has passed and they, it's not going to happen for them. And so she's very sad. And, and she's and like, she also doesn't mean literal clown, right? But it's like you know, it's like, oh, this is this fu- this 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 situation is darkly funny, but not really, haha. Sarcastically send in the clowns because, right? We you know we can't get anything right, and and all that comes so across. Like, you don't need. Well, to yeah, show. no, she's doing she's doing a good job, and it's Sondheim. The lyrics are smart, right? But like, it's but yeah. So to have these clowns being like sort of goofy in the background, but it's almost like. I sort of read it and maybe I'm being too kind to it because I'm just going to put this out there. I fucking love this, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I love it in a, in a like, this is the most seventies thing that ever seventies kind of way. <laughs> like, I don't think it's good, but I am so charmed by it as like this window into the late seventies that I, th- I think there's like something like the clowns are, I don't know. I'm trying too hard, but like, like the clowns are, like not mocking her, but like, like they're being goofy, but it's it's almost sarcastic. Like, like it's. I mean, also something like balletic about. Them. Yeah, yeah, and they they are clearly not just clowns. Like they are trained dancers, or at least one or two of them are. Like at one point they're in slow right, motion. Right. One of them does like flips. <laughs> yeah, like they're in slow motion at one point, which just feels very like, like arty, and it's like. Like, because they're, they're not actually funny. Yeah, somebody had a vision. Oh, I thought it was, I thought they were hilarious. No, they like, I think it was funny for all the that's wrong what, reasons. That's what I, that's I, what I mean. That's what I mean. Like, I don't think the intent, I think they are very funny. But I, they're, they're, but I think that's the point. Like, they're, they're, 
they're kind of grotesque in a way. And I think that's maybe the point. I, I don't know. I love it. <laughs> I just know that like a common trope on the Muppet show is let's overly literalize the lyrics. That is also true. And that's exactly what they're doing here. Yeah. And every other time they've done that, it's purposely for comedic effects. So I don't know why we know that it's funny for I Got You Under My Skin. But this time we're like, well, maybe it's pathos. Like, eh. Yeah, but the, but the <laughs> yeah, song is delivered so straight and I Got You Under My Skin is not. Like that's, like, that's one where they're very deliberately telling you that they're doing the song funny. And, and in this, the slow motion. I th- somebody was directing this and trying to be very directory. <laughs> about it yeah oh but see i t- the slow motion for me was like a laugh moment it's like how how can you further make these clowns ridiculous and inappropriate let's do slow motion Maybe. <laughs> and then speed but them i think up. in 1977 that wasn't how that would have read it was but like maybe. a cool contemporary camera trick that you could do i don't know we definitely need to have a special episode where we bring on some older guests and just like ask an old person all of our questions about how things played in the 70s ask an old person was this funny was this cutting edge yeah i don't know there's unfortunately no choreography credit on this episode i should check the dvds because sometimes the credits actually are different sometimes like it's the uk version versus the u.s version and i forgot to do that but i I did quite a bit of research to try to figure out looked um it has very cat energy so i'm just assuming it's jillian lynn and the other appearance of these clowns in the Melissa Manchester episode was Jillian Lynn. So all signs point to Jillian Lynn. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's doing a good job and the clowns are doing a good job and they don't match. And whether that's intentional or not, maybe we'll never know. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh-huh. <laughs> never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business. Here we are at Pigs in Space and our mid-course correction uh, in which an overqualified woman is thwarted by a man's ham-fisted attempt to tell her how to do her job. (laughs) After all, I did go to school for this particular maneuver for 11 years. Still, you are a woman. Yes, Captain, just as you are a man. Technically, you're both pigs, but we know what you're talking about. I'm not sure what to make of the way she delivers that, but just as you are a man, is that is that flirty or is that just? There's a weird like melodrama soap thing happening here that is feels like it's from a different sketch. Yeah. Well, I think this in general, they're they're still finding the way we have pigs in space, but it's as much a parody of the idea of a serialized space opera as it is whatever the actual thing is. Yeah. And so I think that's what what that's about. That's why also like the VO both last week and this week make references to the idea that like you're seeing a piece of a serial, but likely out of order and you won't know what happened before or what's going to happen next because we're not going to Yeah, tune in next week and miss the continuation or yeah. I have a thought about that actually. Since we talked about it last week, I, I was thinking about that, that closing voiceover and I think it's doubly a joke about, this show being in syndication and subtly a Star Trek reference just because Star Trek really hit its stride as far as fandom and the public consciousness in syndication. Mm. So I imagine there was a lot of that with Star Trek fans of like, you know, Oh, I didn't catch the end of this. And it's just because it got all jumbled up. We've got an editorial by Sam the Eagle, which was a recurring sketch in 
four episodes in season two, and in this one, a very stately Sam announces he's had it. I just want it known that following that last piece of material, I am disassociating myself from this whole weird, sick show. Where do I go? (laughs) So it follows Pigs in Space. I don't know if it was meant to follow Pigs in Space or if it was just something they recorded for Sam that they could easily put anywhere. I appreciate Sam. I think this is great. I don't have anything else to add. I love this bit, but also there's not a lot to say about it. Well done. Good job, Muppets. We've got a Muppet News flash, which is very flashy indeed. The news report catches fire and burns up in a second or two. No news tonight because it's gone. (laughs) Okay, we've got this weird little Kuzbanian foob sketch where... Kermit is in his adorable reporter outfit, and he's interviewing a creature called the Kuzbanian Foob, who is also pretty adorable. I like the texture of his fur. It's like a poodle. And he's apparently the most delicious creature on the planet Kuzbane, and he avoids being eaten by rapidly evolving. They switch puppets a few times, uh, and every time they cut back to him, he looks more and more similar to Kermit, and he eventually evolves into a Kermit lookalike with the same outfit and everything, which is, that's not how evolution works. I, I don't think you'd call it camouflage either. It's evolution in the Pokemon sense. We're like... (laughs) (laughs) And Kermit isn't even his final form. He's gonna... Right. (laughs) I I guess. Until Kermit gets eaten and he has to evolve to look like something else. What was interesting to me is that whoever was performing the Foob as Kermit was not as good at Kermit as Jim is at Kermit. And it was very noticeable seeing the two of them next to each other. And I can't decide if that was because they were like being sloppy with the sketch or if that was on purpose. Cause it wasn't just that like it didn't move like Kermit, but it, the lip sync was really bad for that one little huh. section. I mean, I could tell that the, the puppeteering wasn't as good because this person wasn't as used to Kermit, but also I wasn't sure if the, I mean, maybe they didn't build the puppet exactly the same way. Either he wasn't holding his hand the same way, or it was a puppet that was different enough that you could differentiate which one was Kermit and which one wasn't, even though they were identical. <laughs> Yeah, I tried to do some sleuthing also, watching them side by side. So our UK sketch is a sketch this week rather than a song. Sam is sitting in Settler and Waldorf's box. Waldorf has fallen down laughing, and we find out that he's fallen down laughing literally. And now for this sketch, Sam is suddenly sitting in his seat and talking to Statler while Waldorf struggles to climb up the outside of the box. Wonderful! Very funny, eh, Waldorf? (laughs) I wonder where he went. He was here a minute ago watching the food and falling down laughing. I'm still falling, but I've stopped laughing. (laughs) And as we go through this sketch, we hear that he sounds less and less like Waldorf, which is also, he must really be in dire straits if it's altering his voice. It's also altered his fingers. I think they gave him an alternate hand where like he has these flattened fingers that they can like pull away one by one from the box. It's all very precarious looking. He's struggling to climb up and it's it's supposed to be funny that Sam and Statler are making jokes at his expense while he's in a precarious position. I feel like there was at least one previous episode where either Statler or Waldorf ended up hanging off the edge of the box like that. Am, am I imagining that? No, it's happened. And they've also fallen out of the box. Like, I mean, and they're Muppets. If they fall down, they won't die. But you can hear him struggling and you can hear him say... He comments multiple times saying that he's lost feeling in his arm and he's not laughing anymore and he's going to fall and die. 
I mean, it's the the content of what Sam has come here to say is entertaining enough where he feels like these are the only two people he can talk to on this show because they stand for his kind of values, I guess. I always like when we get unexpected pairings of Muppets in conversation. Uh, and so it was nice to see Sam talking to Sattler. This is a great sketch to be the UK sketch because, like, boy, would you not miss it if it yeah. wasn't there. <laughs> yep. We've also got a Swedish chef sketch. The chef is wielding his boom boom, uh, which he deploys against a head of lettuce, which when he fires it and it rains down as a salad, and then he throws up a head of cabbage and it produces Brussels sprouts, and then he tosses up a coconut, which somehow yields a rubber chicken when it comes back down. And then the coconut... Uh, comes back a minute later and bonks him in the head. And I am in favor of jokes, which spontaneously generate rubber chickens. This also has a weird kind of structure. It takes place in two parts on either side of a backstage bit. So suddenly in the middle of the Swedish chef sketch, they cut to Scooter standing backstage and he tries to appeal to J.P. Gross's sense of art and not tear the theater down. And suddenly we're back on the chef. And then we go to Statler and Waldorf laughing at him. And then the lights go down and Jerry Nelson announces, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> it's Judy Collins, and that she sings in, in the Clown. So it's a, there's a lot coming at us at once without any of our traditional Kermit coming on stage to announce what's happening. It's actually reminded me a lot of the structure of the Muppet Show Sex and Violence, which I know we have not done a whole episode about, but we have talked about on occasion. It was the second pilot for the Muppet Show uh, and the first introduction of the Swedish Chef, where his bit is chopped up into little pieces that are scattered throughout the whole episode. Uh, and I wonder if, there was an intentional like, oh, right, that was sort of our original plan for this guy. Let's see how we can make it work that way now. Maybe. Makes sense because you, you kind of have to cut away from him practically. And it's it's not like the continuity matters. Like it it I, I like the sense that the sense of reality it gave of like this is a thing that's happening on stage while this thing is happening backstage, and you do not need to see all of it, right? Like you just know what's going on. Yeah. So meanwhile, back on stage, the chef is still shooting guns at vegetables. I made fun of it earlier, but I think like tonally, this is also why I think that we were meant to take Son of the Clown seriously, right? Tonally, they could not figure out how to get from that to Send in the Clowns, which is so why they just they did dim the, the lights. Yeah, it's why they did the voice. So I think, right? Because you can't cut right to it. There was no commercial break there. Yeah. I mean, you could have Kermit come up. Kermit, but I don't think there was time, it. right? Because it all kind of segues. It's my it's my hunch. And um, you're probably right, but it, it feels like it all happened in editing, as a, right? Like that that was a sort of a last minute choice of like, wait, where do we put this? <laughs> what do we do with this episode? We 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 made a we made a salad out of it. <laughs> we fired a boom boom at it, and we got some Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Ever eat any of that Swedish chef's food? Are you kidding? If I did, I'd be dead. That's why I asked. <laughs> and then this is my, I mean, it's my favorite line in the episode, even though it's not in the delivery. It's the way that Statler then suddenly turns and looks away innocently. That's why I asked. <laughs> so. Like, is he suggesting that he's dead? This is one of those jokes that I feel stupid I didn't get. Oh, I think he's suggesting that he wishes that Waldorf would eat some of the food and die. Got it. That makes more sense. But he's also looking away innocently and trying to not take credit for the, that line. Right. It's a cute bit of puppeteering. It is a cute bit of puppeteering. They're very cute. Yeah. And an ominous threat to his comedy partner. 
<laughs> uh, they're going to get that Swedish chef someday. Who is? The smorgasbord of health. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, final no. thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for not dimming the lights so we didn't fall asleep. Those clowns. Yeah, I think we got to all of my favorite everythings, including my favorite neckerchief of the week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppetrogy. We'll be back next week to discuss the Nancy Walker episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppetrogy or on the web at Muppetrogy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and tell your friends. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Did I say both sides now really weird? I think I did. I don't think you did. You <laughs> included the comma, which is exactly as well. it should be. <laughs> I said both, both sides now and hit the sides, but yeah. Right. But that's not how it is in the song. Is Yeah. Both sides now. There's a, I don't know. Um, there's a comma? I've never seen a comma in the right? title. There is, there is in our show notes. That's all I got. It, it is everywhere I looked it up in researching this episode. Oh, <laughs> weird. I know. It's actually given me all sorts of agita this week dealing with the knowledge of this comma.